Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. We've been gone. You've missed us, but we're back. It's going to be okay. I'm here with my friend and colleague, as always, Matthew Donato, and we're about to bring you yet another horror movie that you probably haven't seen but should have. Uh, Donato, it's been two months, a month and a half since we've last uh, published an episode of the show, something like that. Yeah, about like the director's cut episode. I think maybe maybe a month, month and a half hasn't been as long okay. as we think. But I mean, you know, we were at a good clip for a little bit, and then we decided to upgrade our website and do some other things, and all of a sudden life took over. So we are happily back now and uh, back to the podcasting grind. Yes, and we're very excited because you in particular have done some work and lined up probably our next gosh six or seven guests. I feel like um, in and out of the industry, some film critic folks, some folks that are actually filmmakers are involved in the filmmaking process. So we've got a really fun lineup of upcoming guests, and they are very excited to bring their their tiny, tiny, tiny little movies to us, which is just, just the fucking way that we want it. Uh, but for today, for our triumphant return, I feel like if we've been gone for a month, we can have a triumphant return. That's my rule. I'm sticking with it. We are bringing back a personal favorite of Certified Forgotten and someone who has been on the show before, and we couldn't be more excited to bring her back. Donato, introductions, please. Yeah, and I'm excited we're bringing this guest back, too, because their first movie was an older cult classic, but it already had like the cult following in a way. So, you know, we just kind of went over why it is a part of Midnight Culture and Wild Zero uh, is that episode, obviously, I'm referencing. So it's fun to bring back Harmony and talk about a movie that doesn't have that cult following yet so hopefully we can start building the cult following for the episode that we are going to do today and as i've already said harmony colangelo co-host of this ends at prom and technically a published author harmony welcome back hello <laughs> i love that like i should put that in my bio on twitter technically published author because that that sounds really nice like that sounds swanky but like when you say you're a podcaster people are like well who isn't but yeah. who's a technically a published author? Ah. So it's funny. I have like a lot of the meetings that I take um, because of my day job. A lot. I'm on a lot of video calls, and this is the same rig that I use for people at home. I have a little hands-free microphone, and I have a headset that I use. I use the same rig when I'm in meetings too. And so everybody wants to go. Oh, are you a podcaster? And I, and I just I don't have the heart in a professional setting to get into it about what the show's about. I'm like, yeah, I have a small little show, and you can see them like feeling for more information. I'm like, yeah, like. <laughs> No, let's let's talk about TPS reports or whatever it is we're here to talk about today. My my one coworker actually always tries to put me on the spot in meetings. Like we'll have these like group meetings, and uh, my friend Hannah will always be like, "Oh yeah, like if if everyone doesn't know, like Matt's also like a film critic and a, and a podcast co-host. Like Matt, plug yourself." And I'm like, "Nobody here wants to hear about this." And like you, you try to do your like two sentence thing, and you already hear like the air evaporate once you mention the word horror in like a business corporate setting. And I'm like, "All right, why why are we doing this?" Like I love you, Hannah, but. Like, like, please stop. <laughs> Does Hannah listen to the show? Is she going to appreciate the shout out today? I don't know. Possibly. We'll, we'll find out if I get a text. <laughs> I suppose we will. Well, Harmony, it's really, really good to have you back on the show. I think Donato said it perfectly in, in the beginning. We love talking about Wild Zero, but you brought something today that is, I, I think, sort of, we think the reason that Certified Forgotten exists, a movie that came out recently, popped up on the horror film circuit, did not quite get a splash. And we'll go into that when we talk about the film proper. Um, but before we talk about the movie, you know, if, if you'd like to hear more about kind of Harmony's journey through film criticism and the, the writing that she does, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the Wild Zero episode. We talk about that for the first 30 minutes, and it's a really good conversation. But when I came on the call today, when I jumped into the webinar or webinar recording, whatever, I've got to turn off my work brain. Uh, the two of you were already really deep into having a good conversation about vampire movies. And I think that that 
the movie we're talking about today, Bit, is is so literate in the genre of vampire movies that I think I'd like to have a discussion about vampire movies and where the genre is today and where, you know, I Donato, I know you're working on a piece, so you've got a lot of thoughts on this too. So Harmony, before we talk about Bit, let's start by you anchoring us about what what is it about vampire movies that you like or dislike? They've been around since the beginning of film. I'm kind of curious what this genre does for you, if anything. My favorite aspect about vampires, and this is similar about, honestly, a lot of you know classic movie monsters, is the idea that there is not a supernatural element per se to vampires. They're more of just like a facet of nature where it's like, this is just a thing that exists. It's not ghosts. It's not magic. They have powers, but this is just a thing that's been around since the dawn of time. And there's lore and there's history. And these vampires are usually writing their own history because they're centuries old. And that to me is far more interesting than a lot of other um that and with monsters is a lot more interesting than a lot of classic elements of like ghosts or witches, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that sort of mysticism and otherworldliness doesn't appeal to me as like the natural world does. And that's what I, that's the aspects of vampires that I like, which ironically means I don't like, I guess I don't love more is a more apt way to describe it. A lot of classic Gothic vampires. I treat vampire movies kind of the way that I treat Westerns, which is, I'm not necessarily a fan of respected Westerns. I start at the spaghetti stuff and then I like it when it gets silly, like the quick and the dead. One of my favorite Westerns, probably not in the conversation of all time great Westerns, but I don't care. (laughs) That's how I kind of approach my favorite vampire movies. Well, and I think I kind of have the same approach because right now I am going through a project for IGN and it is taking me, you know, the huge task of saying these are the best vampire movies ever. And I've done a lot of homework, let's say, because I have plenty of blind spots in vampires. Growing up, vampires were not the creature or the subgenre that really drew me to horror at all. So I kind of just let those go to the wayside while I went for my horror comedies, my midnighters, stuff like that. So I've done a lot of uh, groundwork to say to kind of fill the spots. And the thing that I'll agree with you on, Harmony, is I think that uh, vampire movies are best when they aren't operating as traditional vampire movies, because I think about stuff like Honestly, like uh, Near Dark, I think, is one that we both share our love for in the sense that (laughs) exactly like it is a vampire movie that is playing against convention so much in that like it almost has this like Texas Chainsaw family, like family madness kind of vibe. And Mm -hmm. it's less about the, you know, the vampire turning people and uh, in a way that like who's creating a coven, all this stuff like this is vampires turning people to create a family and not really meaning to create people all, all the time as we see in the film. And just the rawhide nature of it all, that bar scene, everything about it is so Western, Southern. It goes against all that uh, gothic stuff, but it still is a mm-hmm. vampire film. And it accentuates the fact that like vampires can be so many things. I, another one for me is like, I, this is going to be wildly unpopular, I believe. But I think the movie Afflicted, which is a, like a 2013, 2012 found footage vampire film, is one of my favorite vampire movies ever. And I know I'm going to catch so much heat for it, but like what Cliff Prowse <laughs> and Derek Lee do uh, with first person perspectives and telling a vampire story. That's also contemporary. And like, it goes with the feral vampire and you watch the transformation as two friends are basically coming to grips that one of them is turning into a vampire. Uh, like it's like doing hardcore Henry before hardcore Henry even came out. The action is stellar, uh-huh. and like, the vampire contortionist acting is just so good. So like, that's what I want to see for my vampire movies. I I, I am 
I, I'm done kind of with seeing them in the, in the traditional way. I want to see what the vampire like evolution is like in today's day and age as well. And that leads us like, you know, into what we're talking about today. Oh, definitely. Like the way I kind of look at vampires or at least my favorite approach to them is that I've I've seen Dracula. I've seen uh, Hammer films. I've seen a lot of your, you know, standard vampire flicks. But and this is going to be a left field comparison. Um, I like vampire movies that feel kind of like Nighthawks at the diner, like the painting in that they're creatures of the night, but they're not. It's not necessarily glamorous. It's not necessarily sexy. It can be cool, but being someone that exists after hours can mean a lot of different things. Like the daylight's your enemy. So what do people do at 4 a.m.? You know, like what does living off the grid essentially or or only in like the nightlife at best what does that look like and that's something that bit does so well and is so exciting and one of the reasons one of many reasons why i love this movie and i think i'll also double down on like ferocious vampires uh and and the way that we talk about like this is not it's not to say like anti-twilight or anything like that like oh twilight ruined vampires i only watch them when they're scary but i am just myself more drawn to stuff like Stakeland, um 30 days a night Things where the vampires are literal monsters and like, you know, from Dusk Till Dawn is probably one of my again, one of my favorites. It'll forever be one of my favorite Midnighters, everything. Go down. Also very good. Like I love the I love like uh, like the Southwest vampire aesthetic that we get Mm -hmm. in Near Dark and from Dusk Till Dawn. Like it's so exciting and so specific. And I. I, I don't know. It just feels like there's more of a culture to those vampires that exists that makes sense. Um, like we see it in this this movie where Laurel complains to Duke, well, why don't we sleep in coffins? It's like, well, why would you? Aside from that, they're cool. Like, no, like you you can't take those like European centric, like Eastern European centric ideas of what a vampire is and assume it's going to exist everywhere. So like Southwest vampires, of course, they have their own culture and in it's, it's really well defined. And it's so part of like Americana or Mexican culture, depending on these films. And it is very interesting. It's 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 so much more lived in than like this idea of like a silly American who's aping European styles. And I mean that, like, you know, I had never seen Ganja and Hess before. Uh, so, like, that was another new watch to me. And just the sense that, like, you know, one of the earlier black horror films was basically, like, you know, Ganja and Hess in the way that it was allowed to exist against all of these white representations of vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, just showing, like, how you can take the simple idea of a vampire, which is a bloodsucker. And, you know, that is a movie about the black experience and all these other things mm-hmm. that go into it. And, like, all the different ways you can take something that is so cemented in horror culture and do so many different things with it. And then you think about all the vampire films that have come, you know, after these films for decades Uh and the ones that try not to do anything different. And you're kind of like, I don't know, like, don't you see that the ones that exist and the ones that like succeed in a way that is so above the others, they're doing something different. So I don't like, yeah, I don't know why we want to go back and do the same thing anymore. Like why we'd want to do like, unless you have an incredibly sexy gothic vampire movie that is like well mm. above anything we've ever seen before. Uh, why we're trying to like recreate what we had at once. Uh, and you know, Dracula is to me, it is one of the better ones, the original uh, universal monsters, Dracula, just because the set pieces and what they build and like the way movies just felt at that time were so grand mm-hmm. and like the Transylvania backgrounds and all that stuff, the castles, it looks so freaking cool and you don't get any of that anymore. So like if you can't go on that, big of an epic scale let's say like i feel like we're just done trying to recreate those it's like you can't do like a low budget version of that or anything so like 
I question why we go backwards. And yeah, I only want to go forwards where I'm seeing stuff like we just talked about, like all the stuff that kind of blends genres and has a little fun with it. Oh, definitely. And um, I don't know when this episode of this podcast is going to come out, but we just recorded an episode of ours on Once Bitten with Brad Michael Elmore of Bit. And you, there, there's a sexy vampire lady in that. Like, she's so sexy, but also it's like a goofy mid-80s Jim Carrey comedy long before he's a superstar. And it's very fun, but also she's super hot. So, like, I'm not opposed to, like, the idea of vampires being sexy. I want... I want ambiance. I want world mm. building. Like early vampire movies have atmosphere. That's what they thrive in. That's what they excel in. And that's what I think other films that have come since then, like the dread of near dark and how it's not fun. And it got buried because lost boys was way more fun and colorful or the fact that bit is so stylish and so specific for the era that it's coming out in. And also the teen experience that it's coming through it's all about have achieving like a good it's about achieving a very strong sense of world building and i guess for lack of a better term vibes like it doesn't matter what the specific subgenre of the vampire film is at least to me i want the vibes to be good and i want them to make sense and i want to have something interesting to look at <laughs> yeah like a good vamp oh sorry god well, I was going to say, I think that's something that, you know, I, I find myself when we, when I talk about the vampire genre, subgenre, whatever you want to call it, I find myself thinking a lot about kind of the zombie genre, too, and how this thing that began as such a pointed political commentary has sort of become self-reflexive to the extreme, right? Like so many vampire movies that you see now are kind of in only in dialogue with the history of vampire movies, the aesthetics, the stylization, um, the lore, right? Like in the same way mm -hmm. that there are like the rules to surviving a zombie apocalypse, there are the rules to surviving as a vampire, to killing a vampire. Um, all of that kind of um, has has become, it's because there's so much of it, it kind of folds in on itself in a way that loses a little bit of the track that like some of the best, there's so many like obvious parallels and obvious metaphors in vampire movies for what they can talk about. I mean, the best vampire movies are allegories for addiction. Um, they're al mm -hmm. allegories for consumption, right? Because being a vampire is inherently a zero-sum game. I live, you die. There's no way for us to find some sort of a common ground there. Mm -hmm. And some of the more tragic ones, I think, do a really good job. Um, what is it? Only Lovers Left Alive, the Jim Jarmusch one. Yep. Do a really good job of sort of engaging with the, like, what does immortality really mean? Which is its own kind of like sub-meaning of the vampire movie is at what point does being alive forever make you want to die and so mm -hmm. too many of these films kind of in the way that like a lot of zombie movies are now basically like oh let's ape other zombie movies let's make fun of other zombie movies let's let's engage with those they've kind of lost the thread of what a good vampire movie could look like because they don't have anything to say about anything other than the vampire movies that came before all they want to do is make fun of twilight or prove that they're not twilight mm -hmm. whereas like there's so much more there that you can say and do with such an in 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 incredible and you know potentially powerful monster definitely and like especially because there's so much different lore you can pull from like even going back to like the basics of bram stroker's dracula there's more than things he can turn into than just a bat yep and we don't pull from those because either we're not aware of it or maybe like the film maybe movie audiences are just like that's silly why are you why is he turning into a wolf I don't get that, but like that's always been a part of the lore. It just depends on like what specific iteration of vampires you're looking at. I I, I think it's just there's an expectation that you have to kind of go in knowing that people will have. 
and then just doing what you can with that so that people don't like violently reject your movie for being absurd. There's a really interesting like comparison in the two Fright Nights, just kind of thinking about that in uh, the the werewolf thing, because I'll, I'll go back really quick to me watching Bram Stoker's Dracula for the first time, which is now my favorite vampire movie ever. It is 100% my shit. Just Good between man. like the reds alone that it starts out on, of course, I'm going to be in it for that. But it just the atmosphere, everything we we're talking about, it's my favorite. And like when yeah. I was watching it the first time, I, you know, I'm sitting there watching it and all of a sudden the werewolf appears. And I'm just looking around like, wait, werewolf? werewolf like is that what we're doing here and you know mm-hmm. researching more i was like oh okay this actually is part of the lore part of the story and stuff like that uh but going back to like the fright nights it's really interesting because i think one of the best moments in the original fright night is you know the werewolf transformation and detransformation and all that stuff like the practical is so good and you get the you know evil ed is doing something a little different than just being a vampire he gets he gets mm-hmm. to be the wolf he gets to be the one that transforms there and give you something a little different and i think that's where the og thrives and in the remake, I feel like it's playing into a little bit of what you're talking about, Monogle, where the remake knows that maybe modern horror audiences aren't going to be as keen on that and know that like werewolves will be a part of that lore as well. So like that's one of the things where they opt to downsize, I guess, and they don't have the wolf mm-hmm. and they don't do that in the remake where like it does bum me out a little bit. But I think that is a reaction to like modern horror audiences and well, we're making a vampire movie, so, like, let's not confuse anyone. Let's just keep it vampires and keep it what people know. And, like, that is one of the, the reasons that it kind of is, like, a little more disappointing in one way. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to think about, because I know you guys have been naming some of your favorite vampire movies. Um, I also think that that one of the weird niches that only belongs to the vampire movie is the uncertainty of as to whether a character is a vampire or not. I'm thinking of Shadow of the Vampire, which is, you know, the... Um, recreation of Nosferatu in the Max Shrek mythology, which is just like super fun and stylish throughout. I'm mm-hmm. also thinking, of course, of Vampire's Kiss with Nick Cage, which is a movie that must be lived, <laughs> must be experienced. It is perfection, absolute perfection. Never before has an actor found a role that was more uniquely suited to their abilities. And so, in a, you know, there's a lot of genres that don't really, I think a lot of horror genres that can't really sustain their own kind of like spoofs because it's either, you know, there's not enough material there for them to find any kind of fun with or that like slasher spoofs are always just, you know, a little like, eh, cause it's, you know, you're, you are always conscious of what the, the slasher roots are. And it's hard for that to really, I think personally, and I know that I'm anti-horror comedy in a way that's been well-documented, but it, it's difficult <laughs> for that to really work. But I, I do think that the vampire movie has this ability to do like, is he a vampire in a way that no other monster movie does. And I think that's kind of weirdly adorable. It's a weird offshoot and feature of this particular style of film. Oh yeah. Because you are what you are when you're a vampire versus like other classic monsters. Like the Wolfman's only the Wolfman sometimes. And usually you don't have any control. Vampires know what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. There's actually was an article came out that I, I hated <laughs> if I'm being honest, where it was somebody writing some super, flowery things about how modern vampire movies care about consent like bit cares about consent and it's a sexual allegory and they don't believe in assault like past vampires do and it's refreshing and i i hated so many aspects of it especially because like this movie doesn't care about consent at all it's just feeding that's Hmm. it's not a movie about good morals it's about people just doing things to get by and vampires are, are are very aware of what they're doing they're they're smart they're clever they don't live that long if they make mistakes you know 
it's it's about like cool how well can i lure you into a back alley without you know revealing that i'm a vampire and getting hunted by horrible white ring internet trolls there's this uh, the, 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 under the cover of night and the shadows of darkness you must exist and be successful in order to get by so there 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 is that danger but in this film because the primary antagonist or i guess protagonist depending on your perspective cuz again this movie doesn't really care that much about morals they are you you we know they're vampires but it's when they reveal it to each other or to the people they're about to kill and there's there's something exciting about that there's there's danger to that as far as like sexy vampires are concerned but isn't the history of vampire movies you could make an argument right that consent has always been baked into the vampire because vampires always have to ask if they can come in so that's always been like sort of a weird no like in you a know? legitimate kind of way like the vampire that you cannot enter the room you cannot enter the home without a vampire asking to and so if 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 you were to go and you were to approach that like the you know the historical place of consent in horror movies like vampires are weirdly there's there's a you could you could write again academic paper but you could write a really interesting academic paper about how that informs the way that women are treated in vampire movies, but also like the vampire themselves. Well, yeah, it just depends on if you decide to uphold that part of vampire lore, which a lot of movies don't. True. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, again, it's a mixed bag, but it, this person I think was writing from a very ignorant place where they just did not understand the depths of vampire lore. So they were like, I have a thing that I am imposing and look, Laurel's so good and cares about consent and doesn't want to harm people. It's like, Oh no, she absolutely murders people. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Like it's right, it's right there in the film. <laughs> like I don't know, it's yeah, right yeah. like there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it just to me, like I just think of like the primal nature though, and just the the feral nature of vampires themselves, and like going back to the literal inception of the creature. Like I I, I don't know, they're just trying to survive. That's what they're acting on. That's what makes it scary. That's what makes it everything. Mm-hmm. And like the choice of do they kill a victim for feeding. Or do they actually keep them alive? Like, that's the interesting part. But, like, what gets them there is all the same. It's it's blood. It's feeding. So, like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how you can bake that into, like, hey, do you mind if I feed on you and kill you? Like, that can't be mm-hmm. part of vampires. <laughs> like, that's not how this works. No, like, arguably, Blade has the best idea of consent if you want to go ahead and follow this, like, thread. But... Like it, 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 the, as far as like the moral of a vampire, no, this is just what I brought up in the, earlier. That's one of my favorite things about vampires. This is just a facet of nature. That's just feeding. That's just getting by. And this movie, which and and similarly, a coming of age sort of movie that is let the right one in, is that hmm. it, you can choose to eat bad people. Like, sure, maybe this guy is like a child molester and let the right one in. Let's eat that guy because he deserves it. Maybe these guys in bit are are rapists or horrible wingnuts that would inevitably become QAnon people if this movie was made like two years later. Like, Mm -hmm. those people deserve it. But also, at the end of the day, it's just business. Yeah, and I think the last thing I'll kind of go into uh, is just the idea that like, vampire movies are interesting to me when it becomes about two people who are part of a couple and i think of thirst i think of uh movies along that line where uh ganjan has again mentioning again where you have two people working together and they are both vampires and at, at a moment they are so into it and they're both doing it together but then one realizes hmm. like you know is this really the life i want to leave for eternity or the other person realizes like hey i'm gonna start doing some crazy shit <laughs> like there's just mm-hmm. a fracture somewhere where there is a breaking in the partnership and 
there has to be a discussion or some kind of like, you know, conversation around, are we really going to do this for the rest of our, our eternal lives? How do we do this? Versus like, oh, no, you're going crazy. Like, like just all these little things that are baked into it. Like, that's where it gets interesting. Like, the idea of being a vampire is scary and dangerous. I get that. But I sexy. want to be yeah, to sexy, sexy, sexy dangerous, all that stuff. Uh, but to me, the vampires are most interesting when there is some kind of separation and partnership and two people have to figure out, like, you know, how are we going to go forward with the rest of our lives and do this? And when it doesn't, you know, align, if these people are not having the same ideas, how that becomes the conflict and how they solve that conflict. Like, that's that's where they're most interesting to me. So what you're saying is you love the hunger. The hunger is very good, and it is super sexy. Yeah. The hunger is incredibly <laughs> so sexy. sexy. <laughs> See, I I like sexy vampires, but you need to like bring them into the modern world for me. Maybe it's just this idea of I don't like the I don't like the concept of a vampire who has lived since like the 16th century and is still doing all these old fuddy duddy things, as if it's like your grandma complaining about modern conventions and how that would have flown for someone who still looks like they're like 26. <laughs> Like that breaks my world building a little bit as opposed to the hunger where it's like, oh, wait, they're going to a sexy goth nightclub where Bauhaus is playing. That makes sense. Goths can absolutely look Victorian and it's perfect. It's it's perfect. It comes together, creates a big, beautiful pie. Yeah. Now you're making me think there's definitely like an intellectual dark web of vampires who are like, no, 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 no. We're just traditionalists. We're just traditionalists. So (laughs) I want to see that movie. We are. We have been dancing around talking about Bit for a few minutes now. I think uh, Harmony in particular. I can. I can feel you wanting to talk about this movie. So I think this is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Bit, and we're going to apply all the things we just discussed and learned from each other about vampire movies to this beautiful little film. So we'll be right back. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Just a quick reminder to you that if you have not yet, please take this opportunity to review the show on either Spotify or your podcasting platform of choice. These reviews not only provide us with feedback, uh, let us know if we're doing a good job, which we hope we are, but they also allow us to both increase our reach within the platforms and also we can use them to go talk to publicists, go see if there are filmmakers or creative talent who might be interested in appearing on the show. The more five-star reviews, the more likely we are to pull an interesting or fun name for the future. So again, Spotify, Apple, podcasting platforms of choice, please leave us a five-star review. Give us your honest feedback. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to see it. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are here today to talk about BIT. Bit is a 2020 Brad Michael Elmore release. Um, And there's a lot going on here that is sort of deceptively not covered by a sort of simplistic plot. So I just want to kind of get that out of the way and say that this description is going to sound pretty generic and on paper it is, but there's a lot happening in the movie and wait until you kind of hear the discussion to make up your mind about that piece. But at a very, very high level, After a rough high school experience, 18-year-old Laurel is ready to leave her small town behind and start fresh in Los Angeles. But all her plans go out the window when she catches the eye of Duke, a no-bullshit vampire. Given the choice between eternal life or an anonymous death, Laurel falls in with her newfound group and learns that running with Duke's crew might not be the feminist utopia she had hoped. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this, not just because both of you are horror experts, but because both of you, I made fun of Donato earlier, but both of you are 
Los Angeles transplants as well, who come from smaller towns in Jersey and Ohio in order to live in the city that never sleeps. Is that Los Angeles is called? That's New York. Whatever it is. I the, think that's the Las city Vegas. Of Angels. <laughs> yeah, Vegas. I was going to say. Okay, like, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to Los Angeles. I don't know what your fucking names for yourself are. But the point is, both of you have this same shared experience, too, of moving to Los Angeles, of fitting in, of getting to know the city. So, Harmony, I want to start with you. Um, let's talk a little bit about why you picked this film and on many levels, kind of why this has been such a resonant horror title for you over the last two years. Oh, God, there's no way to make this short and condensed. Um, first of go. all, I love this movie and I have been preaching its virtues since the day it was released because I saw it in a festival in like 2019. Um, the director, Brad, who I I think Brad is just one of the most interesting and fun people to talk to, gifted us Duke's jacket from this movie. And it currently is in a shadow box in our living room, like Amazing. a sports jersey from a championship. And it's one of my most cherished things. I, 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 I just love everything about this movie. I've written about it for your site in terms of what it deals with, with like trans representation and how it addresses it, but doesn't. And this movie is as deep as you want it to be in that regard. But, oh my goodness. It just, I love that this movie is just cool at, at, at a really like surface level primal, like dig gets into my bones feeling. I like women who are cool. Duke is so fucking cool. And I agree with basically everything she says, barring the manipulative white feminism aspects of it. Like that part aside, I inherently agree with like the chaotic morals of her and think she's the fucking raddest. I think Laurel is a phenomenal complex character with lots of internal strife and, you know, didn't didn't ask to be trans, didn't ask to be a vampire, just kind of had these things thrust upon her and she's dealing with them. And also, I just like that their hideout is basically the Foot Clan hideout from Ninja Turtles. It's it looks yeah. like when you watch the 1990 movie and they've got like arcade cabinets and sick lighting and it just looks like the coolest place you want to be. Vampires look cool. Like they can fly because they can. They have superpowers and can glamour people and they all have phenomenal fashion sense and they get to be young and kill horrible Twitter trolls and just everything about it is cool. Like at a complete surface level, I like this movie. I like how it sounds. I like how it looks. I like what it stands for. Easy peasy. That's my short condensed version of it. Yeah, and I mean, I will, yeah, I'll pick right up and say, it, talk about vibes before, like, I think Bit, way more than uh, other contemporary vampire films, passes the vibe check that it's going for. I mean, it, it is everything that Harmony has described it as, and it is just this layer of, like, LA-ness about it. Like, that is, Monaco, to your point, like, being a transplant and all these things. It, like, it does have that immediate coming to LA vibe where you find the foot clan hideout that you're like, where the hell, how is this a thing that exists? And you find the uh -huh. super cool people. And of course there is something, something brewing under the super coolness of these people and are immediately like, all right, like there's a whole other side to them, but like, it just feels so in inherently LA across every part of it. Like the attitude that Duke has. And like, I wish I had that attitude to pull the jacket off. Like li literally like the way he goes like walk around in that jacket and just be the coolest mofo in this entire city. Uh, but the way, like, they own the city, too, in a way. Like, they own themselves in the city. Like, it is just such a very awesome vibe that they're all carrying. And you get the girl gang 
necessitation of it, but it's never in like a pandering way. It is in uh-huh. very much like a lived in, uh, again, going contemporary and saying like, you've taken vampires and put them exactly where you were in a moment. Uh, and to your point, like if it was made two years later, like the right wing trolls would absolutely be on like whatever truth.org piece of shit, you know, site was created or whatever. So like, it just would have been so much more of a moment, but I'm kind of happy it didn't because now it just lives in like Twitter troll infamy and we don't have to have it super tied to mm-hmm. anything. Um, mm-hmm. I will also say for any purists out there of the podcast who know that we do a, movies with uh, 10 or less critic reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, I will say we cheated by one here because there are 11 on bit. But the uh, when I saw a bit myself and I did it for my research for the IGN piece on vampires, I was like, no, Harmony brought this one up already and Harmony wanted to do this. And now me having seen it going like what bit brings to the table in terms of, you know, I think about how this this is a weird comparison, maybe, but like the way the scream uh, franchise evolved in every period of horror history it was in, like it's most important to me when the scream franchise was one when it was four and when it was five, because those were all times where horror culture was so different. And each of those movies bring something so vastly different to their entries. Uh, and I feel like bit as a vampire movie made in the late, you know, 2010s, early 2020s, it is so kind of perfectly grasped the idea of horror at a moment and taken it where it is low budget. It is indie, but it also has tons of style. It also looks really sleek. The, the needle drops are perfect. Like everything it's doing is just of a moment. So I think it has so much more to say, you know, the messaging alone, the themes alone are huge and what it's doing and the representation. But again, it's doing it in a way that never once is pandery or, you know, the thing that people kind of fear horror could turn into when it starts being representation, like fuck off. Like it is mm-hmm. just a cool ass movie that does things right. And that is, again, such a simple way to say it. But it's so important because not a lot of indie horror, like horror even on the blockbuster level, gets that right these days. Oh, definitely. Like, aside from this being a a low-budget film that does not show its budget for most of its runtime, there's some parts where it's like, okay, cool. Well, you only had a few million and this scene is, like, important and you did what you could with it. I don't see that as a negative. I love the ambition of being able to pull that off. And I think it is cooler for that. Um, Brad has another movie that he made for next to nothing. Like he sold his car and made a movie called the Wolfman's hammer, which he released for free on YouTube. And it's also like extremely impressive for its budget. And I just, there's something about that style of filmmaking that really appeals to me. And this movie is such a good example of it. But one thing that like, it it gets in my craw, (laughs) it gets in my bum and just irritates me is things that exist for the sake of existing um, as far as like representation or anything like that. I don't need trans representation or queer representation to exist for the sake of it existing. That was impressive maybe 20 years ago, but I need something that's good and happens to have it. I like the casualness of that. And I think that that is so refreshing. Um, we were watching, me, me and my wife, BJ, were rewatching They Live recently because They Live Rules and it was on Shudder. It's like, oh, fucking let's watch that. It's been a hot sec. And it's such a lot of big brain kind of concepts about society and class warfare and inequity and all these other things. But it's also an extremely fun movie. 
And I feel like if you were to make a movie like that nowadays, in most cases, people would be like, no, this has to be uber, uber serious. I need to be treating these things with massive gravity and it needs to be like elevated horror. It needs to look like an A24 film. It needs to be so excruciatingly unfun that you can't even like say you enjoy it. You're more so just go, it's impressive. It captures a bleak vibe, but do you enjoy watching it? <laughs> That's how I think I, I want to see more representation or more films approach making a good movie, <laughs> at least at least for my taste where I'm biased and I want something extremely fun. Uh, I want that before I want them to tackle the other topics. I want a good base to build your film on. And this speaks so well to my taste. Yeah, I like what you said there, Harmony, because I think we've talked a little bit about this on the show before. Um, I have a, a very soft spot in my heart for didactic horror, like horror that that it, it exists with the intention of teaching or passing along a message. Mm -hmm. And I usually come back to the idea of uh, the Black Christmas remake. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of one of the screenwriters, April Wolf. She's been on the show before as well. Mm -hmm. But what I love about that movie and Bit is kind of a version of that in a way that I'll, I'll expand on in a second. But those are movies that seem oppressively on theme because we are inundated right now in those sort of messages, right? Like those are conversations we're having on social media. Those are articles that we're reading. Those are reviews that people are writing and essays that people are writing. So like that that note of like, you know, in the case of Black, Black Christmas of like the patriarchy and oppression, you know, for, for that movie, which I think is fun and I really love that it does it, but I, I can uh -huh. understand why people might watch it and be like, you know, I, this is too much. Like I want you to bury this a little bit more. It doesn't need to be as on the surface level. I think films like that tend to age to perfection because with a little bit of distance, five, 10 years, you know, younger generations go back. They didn't live through that moment in the same way that we did. And suddenly uh -huh. everything that we feel like is super on the nose, they're just like, oh, this kind of kicks ass. This is great. What I really loved about Bit Harmony to the point that you're making is I think it has the same messaging, but I think it does a better job of not subverting it, but like entertainment first and how it's presented. You know, this is a movie that has just as much to say as, as any of those A24 films or Black Christmas or anything. It has a lot to say about gender politics, gender dynamics. It has a lot to say about the patriarchy. And it says it pretty fucking explicitly too. Mm -hmm. uh, Duke has some great lines of dialogue, but it also knows that like the best thing that a horror movie like this can do is just be cool as shit. And mm -hmm. so it doesn't feel, you know, I compare this to in my head a little bit to Tragedy Girls, uh, a film by somebody I can't name because we hate each other. But like that's that's another film that like captures a, a moment in time and is like tapped into the youth culture and like gets I'm going to sound a million years old, gets the lingo right, like understands how to convey these ideas in an audience and age appropriate way, but doesn't feel like it's going to be dated in a few years because it has that perfect balance of knowing what's fun to say now, um, but what is more like generally evergreen and enduring in, in the mode of, of horror that it's that it's operating within. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's a um, a movie that's coming out soon, and I'm going to be very vague about it, but it's supposed to be for queer teen audiences, and that's who they wanted it to be for. But most likely it's going to appeal to like 10 year olds who have never seen something before because it's so heavy handed. And any if you put any kind of like adult thought onto it, then it crumbles and you hate it and it's insufferable. <laughs> But this is not that. 
bit is such a good job of like I'm not a teenager, but I could see that this is appealing to teens. I've read lots mm-hmm. of teen perspectives and they go, well, why is no one talking about this? Why is no one heralding this film? Which last year in 2021, I think it started to finally get momentum around Pride season. Like people were like, oh, fuck, here's a new movie that we just missed because the pandemic happened. And I think it gets a little bit more steam, a little more headway every time. But it's definitely a lot of young people who are sort of championing this movie more than any adults I know. But at the same time, any adult that I know who sees this movie, anyone my age, maybe a people who are a bit older, they still think it's fucking awesome. And that is such a fine line to walk. Mm hmm. I think it's the universal nature of it all. It, just the way that like the themes are still very much youth driven, uh, but they still resonate uh, with everyone just in the kind of just the fears they're going through and what they're fighting. And again, uh, the patriarch element of it all and the, the evil evil doers, I'll say of the world are still the evil doers to everyone of every age. Um, and, and again, like I do think, you know, to what everyone's kind of saying before and, the way it's not hitting you over the head with what it's trying to say. It simply is just part of a story because they're there to tell a story. They're not there to like uh-huh. inundate us with anything else. And uh, I, I don't mean this in the way to say that like by no means is the trans representation representation like forgotten, but the way that it is displayed and the way that it is there, like if you didn't, you know, know Mac- uh, Nicole means is like history and stuff like that. Like it's almost uh-huh. like it would just, you know, you might not even notice. And that's, again, me not saying it's not there. It's me not saying it's forgotten by any means. It's just the way that it is normalized because it is, it's normal. They're not like going out of their way to hit everyone over their head saying, hey, look at what we're doing. Look at look at this great thing mm-hmm. we're doing here. It's like, no, nah, it, it's just part of the story because we, we should be treating it like it is just an everyday thing. It, like, cause it is, it is just fine. We don't have to like put it in neon lights and all this shit. Oh, definitely. I, I've seen some people lobby criticisms that this movie is too vague with its handling of trans representation. And and granted, they're very few. I don't see that come up very often. But the people who are like, they don't even say the word trans at any point in this movie. And they're very loud about it. Um, But I've also seen people who work in like queer horror analysis not realize that this movie was a trans film at all and thought it was bad until someone pointed it out. And they went, oh, things make sense. (laughs) I'm a fool. And... I, I I think that it just this movie does such a good job of making the world make sense. It's casual, especially because you're in Los Angeles. There is no city probably anywhere in the country where it's more normal to be trans and it's just fine. So there's no reason to make a big hullabaloo about it. Um, when you have our Dracula type character of Vlad show up, he just goes, oh, well, I guess this is the modern age now. All right, then. And they move on. Yeah. I mean, Vlad, is, Vlad has seen a lot of things over his centuries of life. I mean, the the like, it is the vampires in this movie that basically say trans rights. It's Duke and it's Vlad that are like, oh, uh-huh. cool, let's let's move on. And you're like, it's all the humans that sort of are shitty and suck. Definitely. I want to uh, I want to follow up talking a little bit about Duke um, Harmony because in your in the piece that you have, and it's actually um, since we knew we were recording this, we went ahead and put it on the front page of CertifiedForgotten.com. So if you haven't read that article. It's now one of the featured articles and you can check it out. But you talk uh, a lot in the essay that you wrote about Duke as a representation of white feminism. And I think that's such a great um, framework for understanding the character and, and such a good observation into how that character exists. Um, extremely progressive in some ways, regressive in other ways. The idea, you know, there's some ideas in there about, you know, 
subvert or like overthrowing the system versus succeeding within the system. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that character and why, A, why you love her so much, but also B, why she's this complicated, sometimes tragic uh, representation of, of power and leadership and, you know, continued trauma and, and all the things that make her her. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, easy answer. Duke's the fucking coolest. Duke looks cool <laughs> and is confident and cool and just runs the night. And I love her. But beyond that, um, you know, we talked about how certain movies nowadays take their themes and they're so serious about them. And probably the biggest trend of the last three or four years in horror in particular is films about trauma. And I am so tired. I just Amen. can't fucking take it anymore. <laughs> and this movie is about Duke's trauma. This is about her getting, you know, basically indoctrinated against her will to be in a relationship with Vlad that she didn't want because she only likes women and is a punk rock dyke and it's fucking awesome. But everything she's doing is in response to her negative experiences with men, specifically this one man. And so she believes like, oh, the future's female, but you know, there's the feminism is more complicated than the future is female. That's an overly simplistic way of approaching how progress should happen. Duke believes, you know, fuck men. Let's keep, let's look out for my gang, um, which I hesitate to call a girl gang because I think after I've written about it, um, one of the characters, either frog or, um, uh, or Roya, one of them is, is non-binary canonically, but like it's never discussed in the film. Um, I want to say it's frog, but I also might just be stereotyping because frog has a shaved head. So I'm not going to pick one. But there's this idea of Duke cares about the autonomy of the people in her gang if they're doing what she wants. She's manipulating them to get what she wants because she believes what she's doing is right. No, no, no one ever does anything operating under the assumption that they're doing the wrong thing. So this movie is so nuanced about its approach to gender politics in that Twitter trolls who blast this movie on IMDb and other sites where viewers can actually rate them say that it's like, oh, it's, it's a feminist masterpiece that's a travesty and it's making horror worse and blah, 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 blah. But this movie doesn't hate men. This movie hates bad men. And if you feel victimized, you're telling on yourself. But the problem is it's also not believing that women are infallible. It's all about the corruption of power. And Duke is such a good example of, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with nice people with good intentions. And mm -hmm. she gets corrupted by the absolute intoxicating power that a man used to have. So anybody can fall victim to that. And it's so... It's just so natural in the story. It just it makes sense so effortlessly. And also, we get a sick montage set to Rasputin. Yeah. So good. And I have to say, I, the entire time, I don't know. This is, I just need to get this off my chest because when I was watching it, I could think of it. Vlad, or whoever that, that character is supposed to be, feels to me like the exact intersection of Jermaine Clement and the alien bounty hunter from the X-Files series. That was like the mashup that I did in my head. That That is what Vlad the Impaler is. It's like those two things put into one. And I understand why people would follow him. Congratulations <laughs> to the three people who get that reference. No, X-Files was the biggest show in America. The Alien Bounty Hunter is not an obscure reference. Please continue. <laughs> no, I, I think for me, uh, just putting another layer on top of that, just in the way of like, 
what this movie gets right and how it does things right. And I do want to go back really quickly to mentioning the effects as well, uh, because for a budget of this size, uh, I've seen plenty of other indie horror movies really kind of tank it, whether they do too many effects and the effects budget is stretched too thin still, and it just doesn't look great where Mm -hmm. everything that works here, you know, you do have some moments of like, maybe like you know force push pushing in a way i keep saying like when it's like telepathic or stuff like that but like you do have like the levitation you do have some things that are not just blood and guts uh but when it comes to like the blood and guts and the beating hearts and the like slashing of throats and stuff like that everything just looks really special effects forward it looks like Uh you know they had all the money in the world and uh you know this is a movie that has tremendous themes and what it's doing is super cool and we keep harping on that but i don't want to forget as well that for like the hardcore horror fans out there like oh, that stuff looks good too like it's not forgotten in all of this it's not pushed aside like i do love the idea that any troll who says like this is a, a rage against men or whatever you know online no bit is not that literally one of the characters in here mark laurel's brother is saved because the idea is good men can exist as well like that that is okay mm-hmm um so like that is an immediate just brushing under the rug of any fights there but still even those people that probably came to the imdb page and trolled it i guarantee you they still enjoyed the hell of the effects because that is how good like the indie budget gets done on this Mm -hmm. and it's worth noting too that mark is saved but mark is saved with a very important caveat that if he starts to get a little too drunk with power his sister is going to take him out so Mm -hmm. we should all have that balance Yeah, seriously. We all need a laurel in our life. That's not being, you know, an agreeable friend. That's being a good friend. You shouldn't shouldn't just blindly go like, well, my friend says it, so I trust them to not be a piece of shit. It's like, no, hold your friends accountable. I mean, I guess maybe not necessarily kill him. Throw him in the hole if he's a problem. I don't know. Like, you've got systems of checks and balances in place for this. It's fine. But also, speaking of a movie we were praising earlier, Mark is played by James Paxton, and we get a beautiful near dark reference at the end of this movie uh with the sunglasses it's it's i love it love it so much first of all i just uh sent both of you on twitter a photo of the alien bounty hunter this is very important <laughs> to me that you appreciate the reference that i made i'm dying a little bit inside that i'm alone here so i'm just going to clear that up a little bit and second of all harmony you mentioned that montage i feel like we need to talk about the montage because you consciously did not write about that in um in the essay that you wrote, because you didn't want to give that away. If you're listening, we assume that you're at least trying to to watch the movie or we'll watch the movie at sometime soon. So I want to talk about what that does, not just being cool as shit, but also what that does for our understanding and appreciation of Duke's character, because that could have been very, very silly. And it's very, very not. It is the coolest fucking thing about a very cool movie. Well, I'm looking at the alien bounty hunter and I suppose I see where you're going with this. Yes, I am correct. <laughs> this is all I needed. I don't care. Podcast over. Um, but I, I mean, first of all, the montage is shot really, 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 really well because it takes place over several decades. And it's so very clear which decades they're all set in based on like how they're shot and also like the lighting and the costuming, which is great. But it's told from Duke's perspective and sure this should be silly because it's set to a really silly song, but it's not silly from her perspective. It's deadly serious. It's about how she moved to town and started doing sex work and did drugs and was having a great time going to punk shows and beating the shit out of men who touch her. 
or or leer and just don't don't want to deal with their nonsense and then there's this violation to it like that's that's what vampire that, that that's what vampirism is it's like it's violating you and it's not as i don't know maybe i'm just biased because i think women look cool and i like it when they do cool punk things which this whole movie does but once vlad comes into place like he looks good and like the women look good as accessories but it doesn't look as cool anymore and there's this stark shift and it's it, it just feels like a, a downgrade in a like a really unpleasant way where you didn't choose for this to be what you would have wanted to do Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like imprisonment is what it feels like too. Yes. Like that—that's the way they are able to so well. Like you just said, it is a very fun montage because Rasputin's playing, and it couldn't be a sillier song choice. But it also fits the silliness, and like it fits what they're going for. But mm-hmm. by having it again, by Duke's perspective, what you just said, like you understand the narration that's happening, you understand what is happening in context, and I think lesser vampire movies have shown the vlad aspect of it very cool because for a while that was cool just being the lothario character and the playboy vampire Mm -hmm. like all right you know i mean maybe not cool for all demographics but for the demographics that were honored at the time it was cool um and so this is just the coolness of characters who were actually allowed to be cool in today's like modern cinema day and age where it's no longer the dudes who just get to be the punks and the dudes who get to be those kind of people like you know or you know that character set is now open to whoever wants to be that and i think again bit does that well because it just feels natural it just feels like it should be and that's exactly what you want for a movie it, it like it's never feeling out of place it's never feeling forced it's never feeling like it doesn't belong bit just exists as it does and you never question it and that's like one of the biggest aspects of a film like that that if you're not questioning what's on screen that means they're doing everything right Mm -hmm. and it feels to me too that this is this is a film in in many many ways about breaking the binary right um straight down to the character decisions about having a transgender lead and a non-binary member of duke's crew but the central conceit of the film is this binary struggle that duke has only ever been able to define her act of resistance against whatever oppression she was experiencing beforehand. So, you know, the solution to this is not to side with one side or the other, but to kind of raise level the entire model um, that both Duke and Vlad have been operating with. And for lack of a better word, Laura wants to democratize power. She gives pieces of, in the very end, she gives pieces of Vlad's heart to all of the members of her crew. And she talks with her brother about inviting people from, you know, around the world and from around Los Angeles to become vampires as well. So, it's it's a it's a film about not being kind of trapped into these binary outcomes and it's a very they do a really interesting job of kind of using the montage to represent how narrow duke's worldview has become during this period oh yeah it's the end of this movie is the 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 sharing of power and that's what the correct thing is like in, in a very punk sense if you don't like the scenes in your local scene then make your own you know, mm-hmm. find a new place to like for all the punks to go. If there's too many like guys in emo bands who are assaulting teenagers, fuck it. Don't go to their shows. Don't go to their bars. Find your own place and carve it out and set a good example. And then people can follow you like it's all about the the, the responsibility and I guess breaking down busted systems rather than trying to fix them. 
because sometimes yeah. you can't like there's there's no fixing Vlad. He's fucked up. Maybe Duke isn't totally beyond help, but she's going to be in the hole for a while. We'll see if she's done some thinking when she comes out and she's hungry and maybe starving for revenge. We'll see. But she is not a lost cause in the sense. So there is there, there's elements of forgiveness, but not necessarily mercy. Yeah, I love that is, is sort of a note on that. Um, I want to, too, because we were talking about the costume design. The costume designer on this is Lisa Norcia, who also was the costume designer on Malignant. So if oh, you sick. thought that the the, tra- the trench coat in Malignant was cool as fuck, it's because of this. This is where that comes <laughs> from, too. So nice bit of uh, nice bit of um, early 2020s horror iconness there. Good job, Lisa. <laughs> so this is the this is the period in any of our shows where we sort of talk about the legacy harmony i feel like this is a great movie for you to be talking about because you're kind of the reason that people are talking about bit between sort of like the writing that you've done coming on this show like you've made it your life's mission to make sure that this film does not fall by the waysides of a imdb campaign in a pandemic year so let me normally we'd say do we think this movie has a shot at redemption or or you know a larger audience i think we all agree that it does so what do you think Harmony is the most successful outcome for this movie? Like if you look back and you see this, you know, either by this distributor or available in these places or et cetera, et cetera, what would make you happy? What would make you feel like bit is in the place that it needs to be in order to endure as part of the conversation? Oh God. Um, well, first of all, I've already very pleased with how much it's grown since it was released because I think the trailer for this was put online a week before the movie came out. And with the exception of Nicole Maines, nobody was really promoting it. Like, I think Brad was doing it, but Brad tends to come and go from the Internet. And I who can blame him? (laughs) So uh, with the exception of her, no one was promoting it like at all. So this was really just unceremoniously dumped online. And it's it's getting grounds. Um, I would like people to talk about it a little more outside of just June. That would be nice. I would love for it to get a physical release at some point because that would be sick because it tends to just kick around on Amazon and sometimes Tubi, but it's it, it's getting there. Um, I don't know exactly how far it's going to ever go in terms of mainstream attention, uh, I guess, but I would love for like the horror community to embrace this more wholeheartedly. Like Anyone who has seen it loves it. Anyone I've ever talked to is a huge fan. People who hate this movie didn't even bother giving it a time of day because they were making assumptions about what it was. So mm-hmm. I I think that it's just harassing people until they watch it and then they love it. And you know what? That's is isn't that kind of the moral of the villains of this movie? Is harass them into loving something. I if we're cosplaying bit, then I'm I'm totally okay with that. Donato, you agree with all that? Yeah, it's a tough one because, again, I, I saw it on Amazon Prime, uh, which is where, you know, streaming titles go to die in a way because Prime Video is not promoting anything. It's not one of these mm-hmm. that makes it easy to find. Like, you have to know Bit is on Prime Video uh, to actually go see it there. So it's a little harder to find. And talking in a world of no physical releases, like, it really, I think, would benefit from five years later, ten years later, uh, getting one of those uh, boutique distributors to do a real good release around it with a good package. But that's still five to ten years later. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is still a contemporary film that deserves to be seen more. 
uh, it, I can say I didn't even review it at the time of me reviewing every single horror movie because I think there were like six other horror movies coming out that week. So it just came out at like the worst possible time and one of those things that you just don't get to and you forget about. And I really agree with the sense that the only way to get this traction at this point, uh, bit the movie, is just to keep talking about it, keep putting it out there, keep writing about it. Like, I'm absolutely including it on a piece I'm going to be writing for IGN. So it's like anything you can do to just kind of say like, hey, that movie you have this perception about, uh, number one, stop making perceptions about movies and actually go see them and then make mm-hmm. an idea about them. And number two, uh, make sure other people see it too. Like, be that annoying friend. I, I, We're all horror fans. We all know how the landscape is hard to navigate sometime with so many things coming out. And yes, a lot of bad things. And Like, you know, I'm a horror fan through and through. And I will say there are plenty of horror movies I watch uh, in the contemporary release days of streaming and things like that where I'm like, okay, did, okay. We're just going to sweep this one under the rug there and keep moving. But Bit is not one of those. Uh, Bit is one that deserves to be around. It deserves way more of a release than so many movies I've seen recently. And uh, I'm just going to be a real asshole about making people see it from now on. Oh, good. I'm glad because I after after the throwdown we had on Twitter about you hating Blade Trinity when you were like, I'm watching Bit. I'm like, oh, so help me God if Donato hates this one. I'm coming for him. <laughs> that would have been it. It was over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm never dog sitting for you ever again. <laughs> you would. Rogers would not let you get away with that. That's, That's true. true. I absolutely. Rogers would. has nothing to do with this discussion. Yeah. Harmony. Don't don't punish him for Donato's <laughs> misdeeds. Um, OK, fair. But like, yeah. oh, God, it's just April of 2020 was the worst time for a movie to get released. And it really was. You know what? I've been screaming to the sky. And if nothing else, hopefully this will end up in a sizable portion of the queer for fear documentary for shutter. Cause I definitely didn't shut up about it. And I don't know how much of that footage is going to make the final cut, but God, I hope it's a lot. <laughs> and I think you, I mean, both of you, I think should, should be excited about sort of the platforms that you've used to be able to talk about this film already. Right. Like we in the industry tend to look at the kind of the listicle work that we do top 20 of this top 30 of that. And say, you know, okay, like it pays well and you know, we're excited to do it and we put our hearts and souls into it. But we feel like it's on a different level sometimes than, you know, the other types of criticism or writing that we do. But more people are going to see this because, Donato, you put it on an IGN list. Then, you know, then are going to read full-fledged essays or, or reviews in other places. Like that's a great venue for folks to be introduced to it because mm-hmm. most people just want to be like, all right, let me look through 10 movies I haven't seen. I haven't heard a bit. It's available on Prime. I own Prime. Boom. That's fast decision making. The other thing that I'll throw out here is when it does eventually get some boutique uh, home video release, I I am going, if you're listening, whoever might be listening now or forever, I'm going to speak for Harmony and say that she is available to write essays, to do commentary tracks, or to appear (laughs) in any of the extra features you need for that Blu-ray or 4K release. So please, please, please come talk to her. She's already doing the work. All of it's already memorized. You just need to give her a microphone and like let her talk about the movie. Put her on put her on the disc. Come on, put her on the disc, please. Thank you for hyping up my sometimes word salad of passion and how much I, I want this movie to absolutely get a thing and anybody to give me an opportunity to talk at length about how much I love it. And also a physical release of this would have such cool artwork because it already mm-hmm. has like one really sick poster that's one of my all-time favorites, as well as like 
two online kind of uh, posters for it. Like, I, I guess, like, cover art, because it doesn't have a cover. So, like, it's so stylish. It's going to look so fucking good with, like, an Arrow release or something. I want it. Yep. It's those neon candy-coated just hues. Just everything you want of the pinks and the bisexual lighting and all that stuff. It's it's. Oh, all it goes there. beyond just bisexual lighting, too. Like, it's like, <laughs> bisexual lighting is easy, but it's like, what if we throw, like, oranges and reds and shit in here? It's so warm, but also, like, these are a lot of cool tones. If we are bringing back the 90s, um, embracing, re-embracing the neon color palette is one of the things that I think I can get behind in a big way. Mm-hmm. And that is a very... If you haven't looked it up, please do. It is a very cool poster. And it does what a lot of films have been doing for a few years, much, much better um, than, than those have done. It makes you realize, oh yeah, this is still a great way to, to, to create feature art for your film. Mm-hmm. Harmony, I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show. You know, Donato and I created Certified Forgotten because we really believe that there were movies out there that people wanted to champion. That was it. That was like the whole reason behind the website, behind the podcast, behind We Do Everything is we wanted to give a venue for folks to talk about the movies that they don't want to shut up about. So when you say that that's you and Bit, that just that makes me so excited to ha- to have people listen to this because this is this is why we have created this little platform is to give people the opportunity to just go on for an hour or twelve hundred words on the movies that move them. And I'm I'm hoping that a few people will listen to what you had to say today and immediately go out and watch it because it is on Tubi. And I can say at least on my version of Tubi. Uh, the only commercial break happened at about the 70 minute mark of a 90 minute movie. So you're not, it's not even going to be that broken up. They, they haven't quite like monetized it in the way that they probably should have. But mm-hmm. I want to say thank you for coming on the show. And I want to give you an opportunity to jump in here and um, promote what you've got coming up, things you might be working on, places to follow you online. Definitely talk about your podcast. Let everybody know what they should be doing to, to follow your next uh, big passion movie that you're going to be talking about. Oh, golly. Um, yeah, I don't do as much writing these days because I'm working on something to be more than just technically published author. So that'll eventually be more than just technically published author, I suppose. So I've been busy with that. And you'll get to that when I it's done or I can say more about it. But outside of that, if you want to Follow me on social media. I'm at Velocitraptor, Velocitraptor underscore trap underscore tour. I also have the This Ends at Prom podcast with my wife, BJ, where we talk about coming of age stories, mostly emphasizing teen girls, but occasionally just anything that's interesting, especially when it comes to gender, which is why we have reverse Twilight once bitten that we're covering (laughs) around the time of recording. So we'll see how these line up at time of release with Brad from Bit. So, yeah. Nice. There you go. Donato, a little shameless self-promotion from you, please. Oh, I could never. Um, but if you would like to, you can follow me at Donatovum on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. I have some stuff coming up on the IGN. I have some stuff coming up on some other websites. Uh, just follow me, and I will tell you where it all is. And if you would like to see my face on live streams every Friday night, I do one with Perry Nemirov. We hang out, we drink, talk about movies, yell at each other. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, good times. As for myself, you can follow me at Matt Monagle on Twitter, where I basically just spend all my time wishing I was DMing now that I've done that. That's all That's all I want to do anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I do anything else like work or write about movies. Uh, but more importantly, go to www.certifiedforgotten.com. Read Harmony's excellent essay on Bit. Read some of the other featured writing we have on the website, um, both in June and coming up for next month. We recently did a site redesign, which we can say talk about in past tense now, which is a very, very good feeling. Um, I think 
really, I think the big win there is that our site reads much, much better on mobile. And so you're going to be very excited to actually read those articles on your phone as opposed to opening them and having load time issues and go, gosh, those maps are nice, but wish they had a better product. We're there. Read our site, support <laughs> our authors. Thank you very much. Harmony, thank you again for coming on the show. You now have joined the two-time club. It is a small and exclusive group of people that we've invited back. Um, but something tells me there will be a third in your future. I appreciate it, especially because we broke the rules for this one. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> the, the rules. rules. <laughs> the world is on fire. Uh, democracy is dying. I think we can go from 10 to 11 once. <laughs> All right, Donato, you want to take us out? Are you even in LA? Star Wars.